Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 980. On this week's show, we begin with David Lorelow welcoming Heim Bloom, Chief Baseball Officer for the Boston Red Sox. We hear about Bloom's journey from a Latin Classics degree at Yale, to an internship with the Tampa Bay Rays in 2005, to eventually arriving at his current title and position with Boston. The pair also talk about Bloom writing at Baseball Prospectus back in the day, the history and future of knuckleballers in the game, the significance of starting pitchers throwing complete games, revisiting the Andrew Benintendi trade, and how the organization occasionally has to make tough decisions that they know are right but may be unpopular. There's an old saying that I think is pointed more toward managers, which is when you start listening to the fans, you end up sitting up there with them. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, if the only reason that we wouldn't do something is because we're worried about getting criticized for it, that's not a good enough reason. We need to be better than that. If we think something is right for the organization, we have to be willing to do it, even if we expect criticism. Now, you know, the criticism matters on some level because we are in the entertainment business and we're in a, we're in a very public situation and a public business. And obviously, you know, whatever noise there is may impact what we're trying to do. So we need to factor that in. But shame on us if the possibility of criticism pushes us off something that we think is right. After that, Eric Longenhagen welcomes Jim Callis of MLBPipeline.com to the show. Eric and Jim were both just at the Draft Combine in San Diego, and they talk about what they saw at the event, as well as what is going on in the college postseason right now. The pair also discuss things like how the Combine is the winter meetings for draft folks, how new data and technology at the event can offer new insights into players, the ironically named Kumar Rocker rule, being waist-deep in mock drafts right now, and how much easier covering the job has become over the years. Like, I feel like old man callous here, but like, I still marvel. Like, when I started, which was pre internet, which makes me sound really old because I am, (laughs) like, you had an ESPN game of the week, and you were lucky if you got like a regional game. Like, we didn't have super regionals, we had six team regionals, eight of them, and then those winners went to Omaha. And like, literally, when I I started Baseball America full time in '89, like, the college beat was. Back then, we had very small staff, so I did, everybody did everything, but I was the main college guy. And we would literally wait for faxes to roll in off the fax machine with final box, you know, final box scores coming in to know what happened in regionals. And, and I just marvel now that I can, you know, ESPN with, with squeeze play, you can, they'll, they'll take you to six, you know, 16 different games could be happening at once and they're taking you all over the place. And I can watch in my, you know, on my phone or if I'm at a restaurant, like it just, it just amazes me. So I, I've loved being able to watch all this. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you scoop some fangraphs merch, but more importantly, you can get an ad free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to not only browse the site, but to help the site and everything we do as well. And if you're looking for some great new swag, check out our new merch over at BreakingTea.com. They've got some great fan graphs and effectively wild shirts that you must check out if you haven't yet. Fresh threads to keep you stylish and to help support Fangraphs.com. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Haim Bloom, Chief Baseball Officer for the Boston Red Sox. Haim, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's uh, start with your title. For all intents and purposes, you are the president of baseball operations. You know, not so long ago, you know, the top dog in the, the a front office was basically the, the, you know, simply the GM. How did these titles get chosen, Haim? 
Well, this one uh, was uh, essentially what the Red Sox uh, offered me when they offered me the job. I believe that the three people in baseball that I know of who have had this title at some point uh, are me, uh, Derek Falvey, and Tony Larusa. So uh, it's a it's an eclectic group, but a distinguished group with a Hall of Famer in it. So that's good enough for me. And maybe two future Hall of Famers, right? Well, uh, <laughs> I you know I have a really high opinion of Derek as well. Just hoping we can finish ahead of him this season. No, and I'm actually going to bring up Derek a, a little bit later. But I want to bring up the fact that you went to Yale, and I believe your degree was in in Latin classics. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, what would you be doing had you not chosen uh, baseball? So I'm really, really fortunate that I uh, I never had to think too hard about my plan B. You know, I I certainly uh, did a lot of hustling and and uh, heard no a lot, but it all happened in a very condensed frame of time before my. Uh, baseball career was able to start. So I didn't have to stare into the abyss of plan B for too long. So I never got around to what that would be. Thankfully, uh, I've been very fortunate in my baseball career. So you never really figured that out in college. You were sort of like the, you know, guy gets drafted into uh, the minor leagues and that's his his sole focus. Yeah, I knew uh, at the time that I picked that major that I wanted to work in baseball operations. I had decided that that was something that I was going to go full bore after and uh, see if I could make it a reality. And I had taken uh, some Latin courses both in high school and early in college. I enjoyed it. I found it challenging and uh, and interesting and basically made the calculation right or wrong, uh, but it worked out. Uh, so I might have gotten lucky that my major was not going to have a huge impact on whether or not I was able to get into baseball. That turned out, I think, to be true. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it was the right decision, but it worked out. Uh, and I did find the one thing that it did was uh, it really taught me how to learn. And it helped me with, you know, how to think, how to read, how to assess situations, how to work through problems. And I sometimes get this question uh, when I'm asked for advice, you know, on what people should study. Uh, there's so many different ways you could answer that question. But to me, it's you really want to do something that is going to teach you how to learn. Because if you are not always learning, if you're not always growing, you are going to get beat in this game. And it's a tremendously valuable attribute for any of us who want to make a career in baseball to have. And speaking of learning, you were hired as an intern by the Tampa Bay Rays in uh, 2005. Some listeners may know that before that, you actually contributed articles to Baseball Prospectus. When you look back at those, yeah, what you wrote then, Haim, do any really stand out in your memory? Uh, it's been a long time since I've read them, but you know, I, I think probably the one that I did that uh, had the most work put into it was probably something that I did assessing the first big contract that Alex Rodriguez signed, and you know, some of the value proposition there when uh, you know Texas was looking into trading him, and some of the things that were being kicked around on the rumor mill. And I spent some time looking at that and looking at the value in that deal, and that that was probably the one that I spent the most time on. But, you know, I, I, honestly, I, I can't even remember all the conclusions that I came to, but I remember spending a lot of time on putting that together. In May of 2004, with Prospectus, you did uh, a Q&A with Charlie Zank, who was then a knuckleball prospect in the Red Sox system. That fascinates me for two reasons. One is it somewhat portends, pretended you now you know, being with the Red Sox. But also, I did a Q&A with Charlie Zank maybe a year before that. So I just find that interesting that uh, you actually did a Q&A. 
Yours was probably a lot better than mine because you are a pro at this. <laughs> well, I became one. I think that had you uh, gone into the Q&A business instead of front office business, I think you'd be pretty good at that, Heim. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's very nice of you to say. Yes. Well, of course. I'm a nice guy. I want to actually want to talk about Charlie indirectly for, for a moment. You know, knuckleballers are such a rare breed in baseball these days. What is your opinion of knuckleballers and why don't teams actually try to develop them? That's a really good question. It's something that at various points uh, in my career, you know, you get into discussions about this. And, uh, you know, really, interestingly, the two organizations that I've spent real time with, you know, obviously here there's a, the obvious legacy of, uh, of Wake and, and, you know, everything that he accomplished and, you know, what he meant and still means around here. You know, and then uh, with the Rays, I think we were sick and tired of being dominated by him and understanding that where we played was probably a really comfortable place uh, for a knuckleballer just because of the unpredictability of, of how that pitch moves uh, underneath the roof. Uh, so we spent some time talking about it there. I think it's a really good question, you know, why we haven't seen more. It, it is an exceptionally hard skill to develop and sustain. Uh, you see just how few people are able to master it. That's probably a better question for some of the some of the folks who have thrown it and who have done it or attempted it. It is a really difficult thing to do. You were, of course, with the Rays for quite some time, you know, roughly a decade you know, before coming to Boston. As you know, there's a small number of media members here who, when they look at the way that you're running the organization, they call the Red Sox Tampa Bay North, and somewhat perplexingly, they do it disparagingly. But isn't that actually a pretty big compliment? Well, there's no question the Rays are a really successful organization. I'm proud of what uh, we accomplished when I was there, that, you know, whatever hand I had in that, uh, I'm proud I've had that contribution and, uh, you know, still proud of what they're doing, even though, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to beat them on a consistent basis. But, you know, look, I, I think whether it's uh, really charitable or whether it's critical, I don't think we can be too worried about what people say. Uh, I know that question is out there. What I would actually, you know, ask people if they wanted to get a conversation about that is is ask them what they mean by that. And then we can have a we can have a baseball conversation. You know, if it's a caricature, if it's a one-off line, I can't be too worried about it. Uh, there's really interesting things you could talk about philosophically. I think the number one thing that these two organizations have in common is that they really care about winning. And they are experts at figuring out how to maximize the circumstances that they're in to win. I think, you know, what the Red Sox have accomplished over the last couple of decades under this ownership speaks for itself. Uh, the Rays obviously do a great job in very different circumstances of finding ways to win. That's really, I think, all uh, any of us in these gigs should be trying to do is figure out in the situation you're in with whatever uh, advantages and disadvantages it has to figure out how to win as much as you can. You brought up the uh, Alex Rodriguez contract from, from way back when. When Cincinnati Reds GM Nick Kroll was a guest on the show recently, I asked him about the dynamic that surrounds the trading of popular and talented, sometimes, of course, high-priced players. You've obviously experienced that since coming to Boston. Yeah, uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, one, no, one notable instance in particular, you know, I think every situation... You know, just the same as I was talking about with organizations, every situation, every player, every circumstance is different. At any given point, our North Star is trying to set the organization up to field a World Series caliber team every year. 
And if we do that, you know, that should put us in position to win the World Series as often as possible, which is what we're trying to do. And we basically hold every move up against that yardstick. And the circumstances you're in at different points might dictate different moves. It might dictate trading certain guys, acquiring certain guys, you know, doing different things. So, you know, I think you can uh, start going down dangerous roads when you try to, you know, look at things, you know, in terms of those caricatures or in terms of types or in terms of comparisons, rather than just saying, where are we? Where are we trying to go? And what's the best way to get there? And you need to be bold in your job. There's an old saying that I think is pointed more toward managers, which is when you start listening to the fans, you end up sitting up there with them. Yeah. At the, at the end of the day, if the only reason that we wouldn't do something is because we're worried about getting criticized for it, that's not a good enough reason. We need to be better than that. If we think something is right for the organization, we have to be willing to do it, even if we expect criticism. Now, you know, the criticism matters on some level because we are in the entertainment business and we're in a, we're in a very public situation and a public business. And obviously, you know, whatever noise there is may impact what we're trying to do. So we need to factor that in. But shame on us if the possibility of criticism pushes us off something that we think is right. So a slight change of direction here, Haim. We were chatting on the field recently, and you brought up how hard it is to win at the big league level, that a team can't go into a series against a team with a poor record and assume anything. Yeah. Every uh, big league win is special. It is you know, incredibly hard thing to do consistently. That's why it's so satisfying and rewarding when you're able to do it and when, when you're able to come out of the marathon of the regular season with a chance to keep playing. And it is important to keep your eye on that, that on any given night, the best team in baseball is not guaranteed to beat the worst team in baseball. And most games are a heck of a lot you know, closer than that. So you want to try as hard as you can to win every game. If you do that and you put in that effort every night and you're focused on what's in front of you and you have a good team, you should end up in a good place. But you also have to recognize that the ball is going to bounce differently on some nights and it may not happen on a given day. And so you have to stay humble. You can never check off wins before you have them. And also you could be in situations where, you know, we were in that situation at the end of our West Coast trip where we had kind of exhausted our pitching pretty thoroughly by the end of that trip in an effort to win and a successful effort to win a lot of games. Uh, and you would have thought that last day of the trip was something that maybe you write off because we didn't have it lined up perfectly and a lot of our bullpen uh, was exhausted and uh, we had Cutter Crawford coming up, you know, to make a start on that day uh, that we really didn't even uh, know he was making until uh, the previous game had finished. And, you know, we ended up, we ended up pitching a shutout. Uh, that's the nature of baseball. That's why you compete. And that's why it, you're appreciative when these guys go out and give, give good efforts and don't take anything for granted. I believe you brought up an actual number for the statistical probability of of winning any individual baseball game. In the bigger picture, you know, to what extent does statistical probability go into your day-to-day decision-making process? Well, in terms of the chance of winning a game, honestly, I, I don't know how much it changes anything because you're going to try your hardest no matter what the probability is. But, you know, in terms of decisions we make and, and, you know, whether they're large decisions or small decisions, I think it's a big part of what we do because the reality is that, like we just talked about, you know, this is not black and white. Like at the end of the day, you have a win or a loss. At the end of the day, uh, you know what people did. But going into it, uh, nothing is ever 100%. And what you're trying to do is make the right bets. And, you know, every decision we make, we are basically trying to put the odds in our favor. 
And if we do that well, if we're good at recognizing what those odds are and making the right decisions accordingly, we do that well, uh, we're going to hit on a lot more than we miss. So, you know, the key is obviously figuring out what those right decisions are, you know, what the, what the odds are at any given point. Uh, that is not an exact science. There is art to it as well. Uh, but ultimately, anything, you know, that we do, and the same goes for players on the field, you know, when these guys are figuring out how, approach, how to approach certain hitters or they walk up to the plate uh, trying to figure out what a pitcher is going to do to them, a lot of guys, they want input into that. They want information and, they, and they're using that to craft an approach and, uh, you know, try to do the best that they can to anticipate what's going to happen. Here is a hypothetical. You know, let's say that you had the rough equivalent of, oh God, like maybe the 2004 Red Sox staff where you had, you know, like, uh, Pedro and, and Schilling, you know, Wake, you know, or maybe the Atlanta Braves with Maddox, Glavin, and, and Smoltz, who I believe all pitched over 200 innings multiple times. In today's game, would you actually want any of your starters or multiple starters going that many innings, or do you really think that you need to limit number of times through the order? I think it's so individual. I mean, the short answer to that is, of course, you want it. Because when you have really productive players, you want those guys contributing as much as you possibly can. You know, it's interesting and, you know, very uh, proud of the fact that so far we have three complete games on the ledger. You know, I think there's this misconception out there that, you know, especially people with backgrounds like mine, that we don't like complete games. We don't want complete games. That is totally untrue. I, we are all, you know, I and so many of my teammates in the front office as fired up as anybody. And they're great and they do wonders for saving a staff. Uh, they're incredible confidence builders for pitchers. They're a lot of fun to watch. Uh, they're great, really, for the organization. Everybody takes a lot of pride in them. Now, look, when you're working through through games, and this is something that Alex and every manager wrestles with as they're navigating games, you're trying to make different decisions, and there's different trade-offs. You know, the odds may be the odds. Just you know, We know enough to know that the familiarity that hitters gain every time they see a pitcher helps them. That's real. But that is one input into a decision that you know, there's a reason you empower your manager, your pitching coach and your staff to make those decisions because just because that's real doesn't mean you're trying to limit your pitchers necessarily. It, it totally depends on the situation. There's a lot of different factors. Some of them are objective, some of them are not. And, you know, ultimately, if you have really productive players giving you a lot of innings, that helps your team. And the Red Sox haven't exactly had a stellar record of, of developing pitchers in recent years, actually in, in several years. There are some signs that that might be changing. If so, why? Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to comment on, uh, you know, to compare something favorably or unfavorably to the past because I, I don't really think that's relevant or helpful. Um, obviously, this is an organization that had a ton of success before I got here. Uh, and there's good reason why we got a ton of good people here. Uh, what I will say is, you know, since coming here uh, within our pitching program, whether it's at the big league level with Bushy and Walk, uh, the minor league level with, you know, Javi and Chris Mears and Julio Rangel and Ralph Troyal and so many different people, our affiliate pitching coaches, the stuff that has been developing, has been changing, has been uh, happening uh, under the hood uh, with how we think about pitching, uh, how we try to develop our pitchers, how we try to help them become the best versions of themselves. There's a lot of good stuff happening under the hood. Now, by no means are we close to where we want to be, but I'm really uh, proud and pleased of a lot of the strides uh, that our staff has made. And, you know, really, uh, it's a credit to the folks I named and plenty of other people, you know, that, that, that I didn't name who are making this, making this go under the hood and uh, doing a lot of really good work. 
You have certainly done a very good job of acquiring some pitchers who maybe a lot of Red Sox fans really weren't that enthused when you signed, say, Michael Waka, Matt Strom, John Schreiber, I believe, was off of waivers. Garrett Whitlock was a Rule 5. So without giving away any secrets, you can if you would like, what did you and your analytics and scouting staff see that told you that these guys were really smart acquisitions? Yeah, there, I I don't think there is a secret sauce that uh, that that would be possible to give away. And look, there's for as many successes as we've had, there's also uh, you know some misses that keep me up at night and that challenge you to think what you could do better. But I think it just goes back to trying to have the best process you can. I mean, it's wonderful to be able to have and cultivate and sometimes acquire from the outside really established elite talent. Uh, but if we really want to be as good as we can be, and you just look at the teams we're competing against, you look at the the team at the top of our division right now, and they've done as good a job of anybody at, at uh, getting amazing pitching contributions from some really unheralded guys. Uh, that's what it takes to be outstanding in the game today. And so we have to do a good job of doing that. But it gets back to just trying to make good use of all the information at your disposal, have a really good process for uh, you know making those decisions and, and trying to make the right bets and, and the right choices. And then once you get players in the organization, trying to work together to maximize their ability. We, we've gotten really good contributions from various folks in our front office uh, on the pitching side, both at the big league level with, you know, having Jeb Clark as an analyst on our staff who's doing that. Dave Miller's made tremendous contributions. Um, you know, some of our folks who are primarily focused on the minor league level, Spencer Bingle and Jordan Elkery. And really, like, you, you heard it from Schreiber, uh, how uh, fond he is of Paul Abbott and, and what Abby uh, did for him in terms of developing velocity and confidence. You know, what I think this shows you is there's not – necessarily one person or one thing you point to in a success story with any player. It sounds cheesy, but it's really true. It takes a lot of people. And that doesn't mean the same person is going to have the same impact on every player. That's why you try to work together, communicate well, work together well, have a really good process, because you don't know what person or what link in that process is going to get the most out of a player. You're constantly assessing how you make this process better, You know what you can do to get more out of the players you have, help them reach their potential, try to avoid some of the the times that it didn't work, the next time you're in that situation. And if everybody's doing that well and everybody's communicating well, you have a chance, you have a lot of different ways you could potentially impact a player for the better. And then ultimately, you know, not to be lost in all this, is the ultimate credit goes to the player. These guys get themselves where they are. I worked for a long time uh, in Tampa Bay with a, with a field staff member who would say, I heard him say it dozens of times to players, uh, whether in spring training or instructional league, talking about how wonderful the staff was and then saying, none of these guys is going to get you to the big leagues. Only you can get you to the big leagues. And again, it's cheesy, but there's something to it that at the end of the day, we can help them, we can work with them, and we do our best to do that. We have wonderful staff doing that. Uh, but the players should always get the credit for the success that they have. And speaking of, of your old team, you know, you had said there is no secret sauce you know, to acquiring players, to turning them into, you know, really good assets. I do wonder, though, if the Rays do, because they are so good at getting under the radar players, especially pitchers. I believe that, you know, I mentioned Derek Falvey earlier. I'm pretty sure I asked Derek on this podcast a few months ago if it's safe to trade with the Tampa Bay Rays. 
Yeah, well, look, I mean, saying there's no secret sauce doesn't mean that certain organizations don't do things well. Obviously, there there is a difference, you know, with in, in how some organizations, uh, are, you know, what they're able to do with players uh, as compared to others, and we're all trying to improve in that constantly. So that's not to say that it's random. It certainly isn't. You know, what I meant by that is that it's not something that you can just sort of bottle up and ship out. In basically every organization, I would imagine, and certainly the two places where I've spent real time, you know, whatever success you have, whatever processes you have, however, whatever advantages you have, those flow out of being cultivated by good people working together in a good culture. And it's really, really hard to have sustainable success, success that you can duplicate and, uh, you know, have over and over again without good people and good culture. That to me is the foundation of any lasting success in our business. And really, I would point to that as the foundation of successes that the Rays have. And, and for that matter, from what I've seen in the two and a half years that I've been here with the Red Sox, I think the culture here is, and the people uh, who have been a part of that uh, are really at, at the core of uh, the successes that have happened here over the years. And there are obviously some very smart people in all 30 front offices. Yeah, But again, a, a team like the Rays does have a way of, they really seem to know what is, is going to work. When you get, say somebody makes an offer for one of your players, does it make a difference really which team might make that offer? Does it have you thinking, geez, you know, if team X, maybe the, say the Rays is interested, maybe they're seeing something that we should look a little deeper into. You know, does, does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. And you do sometimes have those thoughts. But look, you know, I think if you start thinking too much that way, you're, you're probably doing so at your peril because the fact of the matter is this game, the competition in this game behind the scenes, the front offices, the coaches, scouts, it's really robust right now. There is no organization where there aren't, like you said, a lot of smart people, people doing things well. We can learn from everybody and we should be learning from everybody. We need to be confident in our assessments, but there's no reason why, you know, we should look past interest or, or potentially things that we're missing in players when, uh, when any organization has interest in them. And usually, in most cases, when somebody expresses interest in a player you have, you also like that player, and it's as part of a deal where you know you're you're trying to you know make it make a uh, a good move for your organization, and you like what you're getting back. But you know, I think if we if we typecast organizations as hey, we should you know we should value what this organization thinks, but not that organization, I, I think you can get burned just as easily doing that. If you believe in your process and you are also constantly looking in the mirror and trying to figure out how you can improve it, and you're willing to learn from anybody then, you know, I think you that, that's probably the best way to maximize your own success. Before I let you go, Haim, I want to, uh, you know, bring up another trade that, that you've made, one that a lot of people were, were panning here in Boston, and that was Andrew Benintendi for Franchi Cordero and Josh Winkowski. That criticism seems to be dying down a bit, hasn't it? Well, you know, I, again, I, I think uh, we, we try not to hold ourselves up to the bar of, uh, you know, what people outside the organization are saying about us. Again, that's, I think that's a dangerous path. Now, I think we were pretty clear on our rationale for, uh, for that trade, and it was tough because of what Benny means here. And, uh, you know, he's, he's had a lot of success since he left here. And we said at the time that this was not a bet against Andrew Benintendi. It was, you know, what it was for us was basically looking at, uh, you know, what we could realize in the long term and in terms of building a foundation and, uh, you know, sustaining excellence over a number of years. 
Now, in some cases, obviously, we knew that if that were to come to fruition, it would take longer. It would not be instant gratification. In the, in the case of Wink or certainly the, the other prospects that we were getting who were further away, if they were going to have an impact, we were going to have to wait for that impact. Uh, but the wonderful thing about tomorrow is that eventually it becomes today. And uh, it's really great to see Josh having that impact here. You know, and for that matter, I think without the deal, uh, we don't uh, realize maybe the contributions that Hunter Renfro had last year because uh, he might not have gotten the same opportunity if Benny were still here. So there's different things that uh, can happen as a result of trades. You know, just because something might take a little bit longer to come to fruition, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be interested in it. We always want to win today. Uh, but if we aren't looking around corners at all, we will fail to reap the benefits that that sometimes can come with doing that. For sure. Yeah. And one reason that I brought that up was uh, the word patience, that people tend to look at a trade right soon after it happened to decide, OK, this is a win or a loss. You know, they don't really look at the future so much, whether that future is, you know, one year, two years, three years down the road. Yeah. You know, and like I said, I mean, there were benefits I felt from that deal that we realized right away in terms of uh, Hunter giving getting some runway. And you remember he struggled early and we were able to stick with him and realize everything that he did last year. And without him, we wouldn't have made the postseason and we wouldn't have had that run that we had. And so that was really an immediate benefit of that. Uh, you know, you can look back at, for instance, getting uh, getting Garrett in the Rule 5. And certainly whenever you take somebody in the Rule 5, it's almost always a long-term oriented move. But you can win today by making those moves. You put yourself in position to be the beneficiary of a lot of positive surprises, sometimes by doing the right thing and focus on and focusing on, on building the organization the right way. Uh, so I sometimes think that present versus future you know, conflict is a little overblown. I think if you always come back to trying to make good baseball moves, trying to do the right thing for your organization so that you can be excellent and be excellent every year, you will sometimes get benefits that you didn't anticipate, and sometimes those can come right away. Where you get in trouble is when you try to when you try to time it too perfectly, or when you get away from just making good moves for your organization, staying true to the things that you know lead to success, that build success. Like I said, you do those you know consistently, and if you do them well and you have a good process, you might not have to wait till tomorrow for those benefits. You might get them right away. You mentioned uh, Hunter Renfro, who. Uh, you traded to Milwaukee to reacquire Jackie Bradley Jr., and you also got two prospects in the deal. So let's close with this, but not really so much your you know, breakdown or assessment of that trade, but Will Fleming on Red Sox Radio said something two nights ago that I thought was great. He brought up you know, not seeing JBJ playing center field anymore, but playing right, and musing about how much fun he is in center. Uh, Will said, I believe the exact quote was, it's like going to the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo is not the one painting. I just thought that was great because watching Jackie Bradley Jr. glide in the outfield has been uh, a pleasure for a long time. Absolutely. He's as good as anybody who's uh, probably roamed this outfield that we have here at Fenway, and it is a tough outfield to roam. Uh, he does what a lot of great athletes do. He makes very, very difficult things look easy. And we're so blessed here, obviously, with him and Kike. We, we came into the year feeling that uh, we had two of the premier center fielders in the game. And fortunately, we play in a park they were, where to do it well, you want to have two center fielders out there. And, you know, obviously, Kike's banged up at the moment, but uh, going into the year like that made us feel really good that we were going to be able to have our pitchers backs. And, you know, we've been able to do that more often than not. 
and your assessment of uh, of Will Fleming's uh, poetry there. That is very eloquent. You know, you're, I, I wish I were quick enough on my feet to come up with a good zinger uh, to throw at Will because uh, I would enjoy it and I think he would appreciate it. Uh, but I I don't have one, so I just have to compliment him. That is that is pretty good. I, you got to ask him if he came up with that off the cuff or if he had to prepare that one. I will do that tonight, Heim, at the ballpark. So, hey, we are running over time as usual. I have a bad habit of doing that on these pods, so I will let you go. Thanks again for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. You bet. It's uh, it's great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Hello again, listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you live from the office of the Fangraph Southwest Desert Compound in Tempe, Arizona. I've got a hot toddy on me today, even though it's about 106 degrees outside, because I think I think I finally got COVID. I think I got COVID or whatever it is that I have at the Combine in San Diego. And joining me today to talk about the Combine in San Diego, among other prospecty things, is from MLB.com, the Yoda and or Johnny Carson of prospect writing. It's Jim Callis. How's it going, Jim? Good, Eric. I, I, I did not get COVID uh, at the Combine, um, although it's weird. I do have a headache and a little bit of a sore throat. But I, I thought your, your hot toddy was an old Miss reference since as we record this, they are they are playing Arkansas with a win, putting them in the championship finals against uh, Oklahoma at the College World Series. So I thought that was a an Ole Miss Rebels reference, not a not a COVID get well reference. Yeah, I I tested negative this morning. I took you know one of my at homes. I I burnt one of them just to see. I, I started to have kind of a sore throat last night. It was very windy and blustery here in in Arizona last night, so there was like a lot of dust. And so maybe I woke up and thought, well, you know, I just sort of. Went for a walk in that, and so maybe that's like I slept in all that dust and and dirt, and now I feel like this, but it sort of persisted throughout the day. So, fingers crossed. I've I've avoided it to this point, but you know what are you gonna do? I don't know how much of the co- we talked a little bit about it before we went on air, but how much of the the college baseball postseason, not just the World Series in Omaha, but how much of the postseason have you enjoyed, and what have your thoughts on that been? Yeah, I've watched a lot of it. You know, it, it's it's like I feel like old man callous here, but like I still marvel. Like wow. when I started, which was pre-internet, which makes me sound really old because I am. <laughs> like you had an ESPN game of the week, and you were lucky if you got like a regional game. Like we didn't have super regionals; we had six team regionals, eight of them, and then those winners went to Omaha. And like literally, when I when I started Baseball America full time in '89, like the college beat was. Back then, we had very small staff, so I did. Everybody did everything, but I was the main college guy, and we would literally wait for faxes to roll in off the fax machine with final box, you know, final box scores coming in to know what happened in regionals. And and I just marvel now that I can, you know, ESPN with with Squeeze Play, you can they'll they'll take you to six, you know, sixteen different games could be happening at once, and they're taking you all over the place. And I can watch in my you know on my phone or if I'm at a restaurant, like it just it just amazes me. So I, I've loved being able to watch all this, although it's. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit, Eric. It, it's it's a weird year, which I think it ties back into the COVID year in 2020. Is with the draft getting cut to five rounds from what was supposed to be 40, there were an awful lot of juniors that year who thought they were going to get drafted and go play pro ball who didn't get drafted. And then they came back in 2021, and a lot of those guys, most of those guys were 22 years old at that point. And, and we know that a lot of teams don't love 22-year-old college players unless they're really superlative guys. And so those guys came back again with a fifth, you know, 
know, year of eligibility this year. And you saw like, like Notre Dame is a team that jumps out where I think everybody in their lineup, except for the third baseman, Jack Brannigan had graduated. Texas A&M has a very old line, had a very old lineup before they got knocked out. Ole Miss, which is probably going to be playing for the national title against Oklahoma, has a mostly older team. They have some younger guys, but it's, 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 it's that's been kind of interesting. I feel like it's, Usually, as much as I love the College World Series, and it is my favorite event, this almost feels like the least prospecty College World Series I can remember in a long time, at least in terms of guys who are going in the first couple of rounds in, in the current year's draft. Yeah, I agree with you. And it makes sense, right? Like, we know what the difference between a 24-year-old guy doing something at high A and a 20, 21-year-old doing the same type of thing at, at high A is. And you kind of see it manifest in this space, you know, with as as the transfer portal doing its thing and guys having an extra year of eligibility. And so, like, Texas Tech has all these, you know, they're not mercenaries. Like, I'm all for the things that give the players more more agency, but it, you know, it has created this chaotic thing. And it, it just turns out that having a bunch of like stable guys who look like they're 28 years old, you know, with full beards and like <laughs> a, you know, a well-developed physique, like it just makes a huge, huge difference at, uh, at this level. And I mean, Oklahoma, I like Oklahoma. I love Peyton Graham very, very much. Uh, yep. There's obviously risk, uh, like hit tool related risk there um although he has been so much better like i think his strikeout rate went from like 30 something percent in the first couple months to like 18 percent since like so even though there is risk like he's even mitigated it some too just in terms of tools and projectability on a college guy he is in a rarefied air and then some of the ou freshmen spikerman jackson nicholas i like both those guys a lot and then old miss jacob gonzalez for next year i yeah. think is a top three no, to I five agree. guy probably and i was gonna say I, I do think the guy who might have more helium than anybody in the draft right now because nobody else is really playing so i need to qualify it's not like everybody's going good and, and like i don't think he i don't think he's gonna go in the first round but kate horton horton yeah went from a guy who as you know two years ago coming out of high school he was a shortstop right-handed pitcher quarterback would have been a top two round guy out of high school if he was signable. Went to OU and blew out his elbow and had Tommy John. Didn't play last year, and for the first part of this year, he was he was playing more in the field, not really hitting. And I I think I was looking this up, Eric. Like when we did our our draft two hundred, we expand our draft two hundred, and he's not on it. He'll be on our list next week when we update to two fifty, and we'll move him way up the list. But when we did our draft two hundred. He had a seven nine four ERA, and it was the stuff was pretty generic it was it was fringy nobody was blown away by it and i was talking to guys and they're like yeah you know like you know he'll, he'll come back to school next year and, and, and try to get back to where he was and, and since then you know he, he he tore up texas in the big 12 tournament he's pitched well three times in the ncaa tournament including 11 strikeouts at the college world series our night i think he's going the top two rounds now like he's throwing the mid 90s with a pretty nasty slider and it looks like the guy he was in high school and it makes you wonder like how much better he can be because i mean he's he's just really, you know, now showing his stuff. Like, so, he, so he's fun to watch. And even David Sandlin, who was kind of on the draft radar last year in junior college, you know, right before we, we started recording this, struck out 12 today. So their, their pitching's really rolling. You know, behind, and, and it's funny, I, I keep, it's terrible. I called him Justin Campbell on our, uh, our podcast when I met Jake Bennett, but like Jake Bennett's probably going the top yeah. two rounds too. Yeah, just a lefty built like that with that much arm strength is probably going to go pretty good, especially like, it's it certainly isn't totally pervasive yet, and I'm for sure we've talked about this 
uh, in private, and I know I've talked about it when I've been on these airwaves, but just teams' ability to coax a little bit more out of guys who are older than that used to be true for. So like all the Cleveland college arms who were picked last year, the Trenton Denholms and the Davis Sharps and and all those guys, like Tanner Bibby has had some starts. I The last I saw Tanner Bibby at Cal State Fullerton, he was like 86 <laughs> to 89, touching 91. He touched 99-4 last night. I saw the yeah. Trackman report. <laughs> like yeah. It's, yeah, no, Cleveland's amazing with those guys. And so you have these, you know, like Bennett's and yeah, Justin Campbell's another interesting guy to think about where he's 6'7", he's built the way he is, and you know, he's got that huge, broad-shouldered, wide, flat back, like he looks like a small forward, but he only will show you like 87 to 92 for the meat of his starts, and you just wonder if there's more like developmental meat on the bone with all of these guys, even if they are a little bit older, teams just seem to be able to coax more of that out of guys now than, than they used to be. And, and Kate Horton, you're right. Like Spencer Schwellenbach had this sort of narrative last year where, you know, he was a shortstop and then he just started pitching. You know, I just got done with the Braves list. And so these like tip of the iceberg dudes are, they're on the forefront of my consciousness now. Cause like the Braves love these guys who are two way guys who they can, you know, let focus on one thing or their guys who transferred or their guys coming off of TJ, like Strider and, you know, Michael Harris was a two-way guy and Justin Henry, Henry Malloy transferred and all these types of dudes. So yeah, Horton's in that, in that bucket. So you and I just got back from the combine in San Diego. I did not go last year to the first ever one, uh, which was in North Carolina. This one was a 45 minute flight away in a big league ballpark. It got me out of 110 degree temps for four days. And the names at this year's event, certainly many of them were just there to interview and face-to-face with teams. But in terms of the guys who worked out, this this group was much, much better than last year. It was an incredible event. I had a great time other than maybe getting COVID. But like the first two days were high school kids playing in uh, like an extended spring training or instruct style game where they would just roll innings. Pitchers were coming in for 25 pitches at a shot. No matter how many outs they, they got, they were just like emptying the tank, 25 pitches in an inning, and then moving on to the next uh, to the next half. If, if you're a hitter and you walk, there's a pinch runner goes to first base for you and you stay in the box and continue on like until you finish uh, an at-bat. Uh, and then the last two days that I was there for were scouting workouts, BP, infield, Guys throwing bullpens in, in shorts and a t-shirt, uh, really airing it out. It's just one right after another for like, you know, six plus hours a day. And that was my experience. Like I would wake up, I'd walk to the ballpark with a coffee and sit there for six hours taking notes and, and socializing. What's it like for you when you have many other things to do? Well, pretty similar. I mean, I think the biggest difference I'd say between your experience and mine is, you know, I was on the two broadcasts for MLB Network. We did three hours Thursday and we did six and a half hours on Friday. And I'm not on the air the whole time. So I'm a lot of times sitting there talking. You know, I was sitting there with, with Dan O'Dowd and Sarah Langs for the six and a half hour broadcast and we were up on the concourse down the the first baseline and I would occasionally get up and wander around and and then you know it's it's funny I was telling somebody like being at that event it's like being at like a winter meetings for the draft like you can't go more than five feet without seeing somebody you know like like literally the whole time you were there but um but no it, it was it was pretty much the same experience as yours I mean it's you know I think 
there, there were a couple of big differences from last year. You know, last year they're trying to get the vent off the ground. It, it, it took them a while to figure out that some of the stuff they wanted players to do, the players didn't really have incentive to do. But they did get a number of players there, not, not so much big names. Um, who were going to work out on the field at all. But you know, this year, I think they had a better idea what they were doing. They were able to get more players to attend. Again, most of the top, top guys, like I know 20 of the top 30 guys on our list were there. And maybe one of them didn't come because of the College World Series. But of those 20, I think four of them did on-field workouts. The top guys don't have anything left to prove. The on-field stuff, all those guys have been heavily scouted for, for, the, for the most part. I mean, Connor Prelip from Alabama is an exception because he had Tommy John last year, didn't pitch this year. So when he threw a bullpen, it was the second time all year guys had seen him. But any of your college guys, people have seen him 60 games or whatever. You've seen those guys take PP. You've seen them throw bullpens. The high school guys, you've seen most of them on the showcase circuit and or this spring or, or whatever. But but they were able to get more players this year to come because because one, and this was, I think, a good change, for a number of reasons, not not for the combine, but more so for the players and just for the draft. If you came to the combine and you did a physical, a full physical, you're guaranteed, unless you, you somehow get injured between now and then, something new, 75% of your bonus slot. So you can't, I mean, it, it was called in the original memo from after the lockout, the Kumar Rocker rule, which is kind of ironic because Kumar Rocker, didn't take a physical right. <laughs> last year, so it wouldn't have helped him anyway. But essentially, you, you, you are going to have a situation where I draft you, Eric, and I'm like, geez, I don't like your shoulder. And, and for fans who don't know, when you do a post-draft physical, it's not like this board. It's the team's doctor. The team has the sole discretion to say, Eric, you look marvelous. Or, man, Eric, we don't like your shoulder. We're going to cut your bonus in half. Do you want that or not? And there's no second opinion. It's just what the team doctor says. Now... What's good about this, I think, really, Eric, is so with pitchers, very subjective. You, you, nobody's nobody who pitches a lot, their arm's going to look great. You know, you're you're going to have some wear and tear. And I, I know I've talked to agents in the past, and they felt like, well, there are some who were like, no, I don't want teams getting any medical information ahead of time. I've had a lot of guys say, look, if a guy has something that's that's you know questionable that some teams may like, some teams may not like, you're better off doing a physical before the draft and having them drafted by a team that's not bothered by it. Now, now there's no surprise. Like the high school guys can go to college, but if I'm a college junior, let's say I have something going on in my shoulder that teams don't like. Like, let's say half the teams would be fine with it, and half the teams wouldn't, because was we both know the teams' doctors run the spectrum for as to what they tolerate. Like, it's just kind of random. Do you get team taken by a team that that's going to fail your physical or not? And and so they eliminated that. So anyway, that gave incentive for guys to come. From my understanding, I think like three quarters of the 250 or so players who were there took physicals. And then the other thing that was a real nice benefit was they did in the big league park. Last year, I think they did a really nice job of putting it on in carry at the USA Baseball Complex. But you had the, the field stuff going on at the complex. You had interviews back at the hotel, which was like 20 minutes away. You had the performance testing across the street from the hotel, the convention center. So you're running all over the place if you're with a team. This year, as you saw, all that, everything but the medical exams were done at Petco Park. Every team had a suite at Petco, and the players would just come to Petco and go from suite to suite doing their interviews. And as you alluded to before, I think the interviews, everybody loves interviews. The players love the interviews. Teams love the interviews. It's a way for a lot of guys. Like you could have, so I know some meetings had like 14 officials from a team talking to guys, you know, for potential, you know, top of the first round picks. But it's a way for a lot of people 
you know, it's it's twenty five minute interviews to 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 get you know like in front of a guy and talk to him, get a feel for the player, and for the players get feel for the organization. I, I have yet in in two years to talk to anybody on either side who doesn't absolutely love the interviews. How about the data portion? Obviously, because this is such a new thing, we now have two years of kids doing broad jumps and activity with like force plates and different <laughs> hand eye coordination and. Flexibility. Thirty yard dashes. Yeah. Thirty yard yeah, dashes. Yeah. So broad jump. What are some of the, the variables that folks you're talking to seem to believe are significant? Uh, obviously, like with the sports that we have a greater track record for combine data, like we have some idea of places like football outsiders and, and stuff like they've run pretty basic regression analyses on the data generated at the combine, you can kind of see like, oh, a short shuttle drill is actually indicative of like the short area quickness that pass right. rushers need and this and that. So like what what is it that, that folks seem focused on in as far as like the data that's being generated? I don't have a lot of specifics because it's only two years and, and not a lot of guys like I can't give you a number, but of let's say if there were 250 players who attended the combine, I don't know. I don't even know if half of them did the did that stuff. I, I might be a little bit light, but I but it the top top guys aren't aren't doing a lot of that. But I, I think it's the same type of stuff like like you're talking about with the NFL, Eric. I think you're looking for explosiveness, ways to quantify athleticism, you know, as opposed to just what you're observing on the diamond. You know, like big shock. You know, Jared Curtis, who's an outfielder from Texas, and Michael Gupton, who's an outfielder from oh my god North Carolina. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like they're really fast and athletic. I mean, and we, we kind of knew that, but like. You were able to quantify some of that stuff. Gupton floats. <laughs> yeah, well, Jared Curtis was even faster in the 30. I, like, I haven't seen the whole complete data. I saw, like, the, the Thursday data while we were on the show, which was a handful of guys. But, yeah, Gupton, I mean, I'd say I'm not sure how much Michael Gupton can hit, but he, like, like if we had, like, most resembles an SEC running back at the Combine – that would have been Michael Gupton. I mean, he just, <laughs> he's fast, he's strong, he's built. Like, like he wouldn't have looked out of place if it was some kind of like, you know, football type combine either. I mean, he's a pretty impressive guy. I mean, I think he'll wind up at NC State and, and we'll see him in college for a few years. But yeah, it's, I, I do think, as you know, you know, any type of data you can, you know, get your hands on where you can quantify something rather than subjectively say, oh, he's a seven athlete or he's a six athlete. You know, most of the teams eat that stuff up. Yeah, I, and it is so because so much of this stuff has been done behind closed doors. Like, I do think there are teams who are measuring grip strength and you know a whole bunch yep. of other different ways of assessing capacity for movement and flexibility. I think is so important. We see those guys like the big PVC pipes that they're like you know moving their shoulders around, sort of like show shoulder mobility and, right. and and different stuff like like you can see that they're interested in it but knowing i have no context for like what is good and and no I, same with me like i couldn't tell you like like i mean i know like michael gupton had the best one of the best broad jumps there but like i don't know like how that translates and you know it's interesting i do think teams there are some teams who try to do a lot of that stuff and now that's kind of become more difficult because they put in a, a rule change this year that starting the Friday before the combine, which I think was June 10th this year, you can't work out individually for teams after that date. So, like from from that point on, you know, right now we have three and a half weeks before the draft. I can't go work out for a team. Um, no player can individually. I I theoretically, if I'm a player, 
I could stage a workout and invite all 30 teams to come watch me if I want to do that. And we may see some of that. Maybe not so much this year, but maybe in future years. But, like, if I'm trying to get that, you know, all this esoteric, athletic quantification, my window for doing that is now much shorter than it was last year and previous years because of this this rule change, which I also think was designed to try to get guys to go to the combine. So I'll, I'll be curious. I think the word of mouth on the combine has been very good. You know, I think I, I think the on-field stuff, to be honest, like like I was saying, I, I I don't think you're learning a lot about guys. You know, like based on their exit velocity and batting practice, because they're like all the college programs. You have trackman data on, on most of those guys anyway in actual sure. games, but. You know, I, I've kind of come around. And I was like, I mean, the on-field stuff, what it is, I think it's a way for MLB to promote the game, to promote the draft, to promote some of these players. And yes, I, like, I don't think you're ever really going to see the top 20 guys on our on anybody's draft list come there and participate in everything because they've already made their money. They, they know they're going high. But, you know, and I'll give credit. I mean, the reason you saw Tremar Johnson and Cam Collier take BP, which, you know, I mean, those are two of the probably top five teenage hitters in the draft. And if you're just talking pure hit ability, they might be the two best pure hitters. I should say teenage because Camp Collier, you know, he should be a high school junior as a junior collegian. But like, <laughs> those are two of the very best hitters right. in the draft. And 100% credit to Harold Reynolds, who loves the combine and is close to both those guys. He got them to come to the combine and take BP, which was, I mean, again, I, I doubt you were sitting there, I can go on. Who is this Termar Johnson kid? Oh, my, that's a nice BP. Like, like, you knew that. But it's still like to have those guys. Take BP on TV, and then Termar, I don't know if you ever talked to him, great personality. He, he just killed his interview with Harold and Greg Amsinger at the desk. Yeah, he's a charming, he's a charming young and, dude. And, I'm, and it was smart, too, because if I'm in the business of baseball, yeah. like some baseball-related business, I'm like, I want to have that guy associated with my product. Like, the, you know, that guy, Termar Johnson could be the number one pick in the draft. And then, like, great personality. And Cam Collier got some airtime, and Brooks Lee got some airtime, even though he didn't take BP. And, um, you know, on and on and on. Like, a lot of the top guys who didn't do stuff on the field got interviewed either on the Thursday show or the Friday show. And and so I've really come around. Like, again, I, I don't think that their teams, like, having these revelations – like, 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 look, there were guys that helped last year. It helped Brock Selvage. It helped Tanner McDougall. It helped Ryan Spikes. But so you're not going to have like guys moving up and down the boards. But I do think to put like to put 10, like almost 10 hours of programming. Well, more than that, if you count the MLB Tonight hour long segment they did, it lets people who care or who want to know about the draft learn about a lot of these players before the draft. So I, I actually think it's weird because I don't have a sense for how the TV show looked because there's so many moving pieces and when I wasn't on camera you're trying to you're either talking to somebody or watch what's going on in the field but like I, I think it does a really nice job of promoting the game and, and you know and like I said I mean I think the teams love the interviews and I think getting medical information on 180 or so players detailed medical information is something teams love it's it's not everybody but it's it's better than zero or better than a handful of guys you, even when they were doing the pre-draft MRI program for pitchers it was very specific so I think I think I don't think the combine's going anywhere. I think MLB loves the combine. I think the teams like what the combine gives them in terms of, of you know the stuff they can't get elsewhere. You know, in terms of medicals and, and and the physical testing and the interviews. And I think it promotes the game really well. So I, I think the, you know, and I think having the big league park, it was it was even better. There, there's talk. I don't think anything official yet that it might be in Dallas next year. You know, where you have a closed roof. Not that the weather in San Diego is bad at all. Um, I, I'd be fine with going back to San Diego next year too. But um, I, I think the combine's here to stay. Um, and and I, and I think it, as you said, you weren't at the first one, but it was 
significantly better in a lot of ways from year one to year two, just because I think they had a much better idea of what they were doing. Folks can watch the stream of that first workout day. Uh, it is logged online. I will make sure that that Dylan has a link to to plug into the post for this podcast. And I think it's really valuable for folks who are interested in this type of stuff to watch someone like Tamar take BP one after another with four other guys who like aren't as good as him and see the little differences when you really pare it down to what these guys are doing in the cage or really, you know, paring down what Jason Mizorowski looks like compared to Connor Stain and Luis Ramirez and like see those guys one after another on the same mound. The context that it gives you for those individuals is it's rare to have to have something like that, especially when you're incorporating high school guys and college guys into the same event. All right, let's talk about your mock draft. You were wrapping it up today, right before we started recording. How many mocks in are you at this stage? This is my fourth, like I'll say, real mock. Like I think we threw one together last December when we we, we did we did our first, you know, top 100. But but that's like you're just guessing and you're trying to give a little flavor. But this is my my fourth full mock. And I, I will say, <laughs> it's so nice working with Jonathan Mayo at MLB Pipeline because, as you know, I mean, you probably hear it at Fangraphs too and probably hear it from fans. We could do a mock every other day and you'd still have people saying, more mocks. Give us more mocks. We need a daily mock draft. And even though there's not that much information changing from day to day, but it, it, it's nice that like we do them weekly, but since Jonathan and I trade off, it's not like because when I was at Baseball America before I you know in my last years at Baseball America, you know tw- you know as we we're getting closer to draft, I, I literally would finish a mock like on whatever day we we would come out with them. Let's say it was Thursday, and then Friday I would begin the next mock. Like it was just a never-ending cycle. So it, it, it's nice to be able to do a mock, and then kind of sit back for a week and let Jonathan do a mock, and then I'll step back in. So, I, but this this is my fourth. And so as you're working to build one, what is what is the process like for you? Your first couple phone calls are to whom? I will say I like to do I like to text more because you can just get much more targeted information and talk to a lot more people, but like you know, I generally try to work both sides of the equation and I try to talk to or talk or text to a lot of teams and I try to talk or text with a lot of agents. And, you know, I think one thing like, you know, you and I are lucky when we do mock drafts is that this isn't the NFL. You can't trade picks. So it's not like if team, I'm just, I'll make up, this isn't what has happened. Well, I'll just use it. Let's say the Cubs and I'm talking to the Cubs and they're like, God, we love Cam Collier. We can't wait to get Cam Collier. And then I put that in the mock draft and then the Royals are like, oh my God, we want Cam Collier. And they trade up to six with the Marlins to get Cam. Like that can't happen. So I think, and I feel like I've done this forever. You've done it for a long time too. I feel like I have pretty good relations with teams. I don't really feel like I get lied to or misled much. And with the agents, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's lying. I don't I don't think people like purposely lie, but I do think sometimes on the agent side, you want to be optimistic. You want to think the best to your player. So it, it's good to talk to the agents, but you also kind of have to know who you're talking to. And what the experience is like, does this guy have a good feel for where his guys go? Or is this guy maybe overly optimistic year in, year out on where his guys go? Is this guy a younger guy? Maybe he doesn't, you know, know how it works quite as much. So 
as you know, you, you you get a bunch of information, but you just can't take everything you hear at face value either. So, right, and I've always, it's not that I dislike agents; like it is contrary to that. Their plight to advocate for their players, like it is the one that I can sympathize with the most. But I have a hard time speaking their language. It is much, it is much more intuitive for me to speak with baseball people. And I'll tend to, you know, I, I, I fixate on what does this person have incentive to know? And yep. so a lot of times it's what do you think is going on right in front of you in the draft? Or if I'm talking to, you know, like a regional cross checker, I'm asking about where the big name guys within that person's territory is seems likely to go or if they're hearing anything about private workouts like so much of the dope around who likes who the most was generated at this stage like between four and and eight weeks ago as some of the heavy hitting decision makers from the teams were getting in to see those guys and you see you know pat gillick at jojo romero's start randomly on like a saturday and you have a pretty good idea that the Phillies might be interested in JoJo Romero. Like if they're sending Pat Gillick to yeah. a junior college field in Arizona. And you start to piece stuff together that way. Like people don't miss that type of stuff. And you start to hear that, that kind of thing pieced together. So at this stage, how does the, the, the front of the front third of the first round feel to you in terms of the names that have the most like you feel the most solid are in a certain narrow range? and the names who you feel there's a lot of variability around. Yeah, I kind of feel like, and again, it's weird because by you know before last year, the draft would have been over like 10 days ago or so by now, and we're still three and a half weeks away. I, I feel like, like I, I'm not, I don't, I don't feel like I know what the first seven picks are going to be today, but I feel like we could, we could go through any scenario. You could, you could, you could tell me who's going one and then I'll say, okay, this guy's going two. And so I like the first seven picks well, I don't feel like it's locked in by any means. Most teams haven't had meetings or set, nobody's set up their boards yet. And it's not locked in. But I do feel like plausibly, like you could give me however many picks you want from the top. And then I could go I could go down to pick seven and feel like I'd have a pretty reasonable chance of getting it right. You know, at least based on my information now. And then I'd say like eight to 15. I kind of feel like I know the names who are in there. But I don't feel as confident, like, who's going where. Like, that's all could go in any which, which way. And then I really feel like after, like, from pick 16 on down, you have some sense, oh, this team likes this or this team likes that. But, you know, I, I don't feel ultra confident about 16 through 30. Like, that doesn't seem like it's it's really resolved very much. And, and part of it, I think, again, is because it's so early. Like, as we get closer, like, again, like, if you talk to – a team in the twenties, they're not going to know who they're picking because they don't know who's going to get right. there. They're, you know, we're, like that's our thing. There's going to be some deals cut in the top ten or twelve picks that we don't know. Like Frank Mazzucato last year, nobody had Frank Mazzucato going seventh, and then it pushes guys down. So the teams in the twenties have no idea who's going to get to the end, and they'll say that. But like as it gets closer, at least if I run like five names by a team that's picking in the twenties and say, hey, I've got you looking at these guys. You know, I'm on the right track. Anybody, you know, and like sometimes teams will say, hey, you are, but you could cross off, you know, don't take that guy. We're not taking that guy. Or we're not taking these two guys. Don't worry about them. Like, and and that's useful. I mean, again, not that you're ever going to get it perfect to where, like, you got the first 20 picks right, so then you're, you're trying to get 21 through 30 right. But um, but at least it helps. Like, you know, I, like I, my attitude is, like, when I do my final mock, like, you're never going to get them all right, obviously. But, like, at least I want it to be plausible. I, I don't want to 
put a guy, say, for the raise at 29, and then find out from the raise, oh, we had zero interest in that guy. So, like, if you could do that toward the bottom of the first round, I feel like that's about as good as you can do. For sure, at some point, I, and I know Kylie is too, like, you're just putting, sometimes you have very specific information about a player attached to a team towards the back of round one, but often you are just looking at the team's history with who fits that mold is going to tend to to be around, you know, like it's not hard to put Gavin Williams with Cleveland or whatever. Like that seems like the type of thing that they would do. Or you could give like the Phillies a high school pitcher this year or right, I keep giving the shortstops, shortstops who can hit like, but like it's weird because it's easy to write it when you do that. But like, I'm also not convinced that just cause like the Phillies took Mick Abel, Andrew Painter, like I just gave him Brandon Barriera tonight, so I did it again. But like I'm not really convinced they're taking Brandon Barriera. But I, you know, it's like okay, because again, I, I don't know who the Phillies have seen. It's like ah, I feel like he's going around this range, and that makes sense. Like or like like here's my favorite, I, and I didn't do this, but I always mention him. So we know like White Sox and scouting director Mike Shirley lives in Indiana, and he loves his Indiana players, and the White Sox love their high school guys, and you know have invested heavily in high school right-handers. So Andrew Dukanich at 26, you know, like I, I don't really think they're taking Andrew Dukanich at 26. Maybe they will. Like last year, they took Colson Montgomery, you know, who's from Indiana. Um, so I don't know. That that stuff gets kind of kind of goofy. But yeah, I know I know what you mean. And like you know what my biggest trap is? Like I'll ask you. Like I, do you do this? Like, like again, you're not going to get them all right. Like, I know I'm not going to get them all right. But, like, uh, like the worst feeling is, like, when you narrow it down, like, okay, the team's going to take player A or player B. Like, in, in your mind as you're going through your mock scenario when you're pick, like, 18 or whatever. And I still do this. I try not to do it. And, and I do it consciously and subconsciously where I'm like, well, player A is better than player B, so I'm giving them player A. And then, like, I, I swear 80% of the time I do that, I pick the wrong guy. I might be right about which guy was better. But I make the wrong guess because I go with the guy who I think is a better player. Do you find yourself doing that where at some point in your mock, you're like, ah, like, I don't really think this guy's that good, so I'm going to give him the other guy. It's never quite like that. The thing that I find myself second-guessing most is information that has come in very late that runs counter to several weeks of hearing the same thing just longer ago. Yeah. Like to have heard for the last, you know, month or so – that team X really likes, you know, Jacob Barry. And if there's a guy that they're going to cut a deal with in their tier somewhere, like in that six to 10 range, like that, that is the guy who is most likely to be cut. If all of a sudden very close to the draft that that changes, that is where I have a hard time either switching to the more recent information or leaning on what has been generally accepted for the last, you know, couple months sometimes of of the process especially now that things are as deep into july as they are i think that becomes a more complicated question to ask oneself and for sure like there are times where in our penultimate mock we were right about a thing that we changed on the last day and then ended up like wrong about that is the, the thing that feels the most painful always is like having done that on the last day and having been right about it 48 hours before and then wrong on on the day well, i'll give i'll give you a great story along those lines so i gotta figure i gotta figure out what draft this was hold on i gotta figure out the player because like I, the same thing like like so we'll do our final mock draft our, our final like mock draft with content the night before the draft and then we'll do a names only mock draft right the morning like because you have all day because it because the draft's not till 6 p.m so anyway 
So in 2018, and like, and Jonathan and I will sit, and we're sometimes in the same office, especially when it's an MLB network, looking at each other and like, you know, trying to whisper and not let the, you know, we, we have a, a nice rivalry. We want to get the, beat, beat the other guy or get more right than the other guy. So anyway, and like, but like, we'll sit there and it'll be like three o'clock in the afternoon or, or two o'clock, like two hours before we have to file. And like, neither of us has anything to change. It's like, you can kind of talk yourself into changing stuff and, and you're not, but, but, but the worst. So 2018. I think I had, I don't remember who I had going in, but 2018, going into the, uh, the, the, the final night when I sent mine in, Oakland A's, I had, I think I had Nolan Gorman going to the A's, you know, who he wound up obviously going to the Cardinals. But anyway, but I didn't have a really good feel who Oakland, like that was one I knew I didn't really have. I, I didn't feel like great confidence. My dogs are going berserk here in the background. I didn't have great confidence in that one. So um, you're like you, you're getting bored. You're texting everybody, you know. And I had I had a guy. Oh, I don't even want to say what his role is in the organization. Like, I don't want to give him away. I had a guy <laughs> who usually has a pretty good idea of what's going on, and he's like, "I think we're taking Kyler Murray." And I was like, "Ooh!" Like cause I was like, "I knew I didn't, I knew Jonathan didn't have that." I was like, "Oh Ooh. man!" And I was like, "But I That's but so it was juicy. like but it was so <laughs> out there too. Like not like I not that I didn't trust information, but I was like, like I, I didn't have Kyler Murray in my mock because like. There was some talk, like, team, you know, like, like I know the Reds were on a little bit. They weren't going to take him at five. Like, I don't think I had Kyler Murray anywhere in my mind. Like, you knew he could go, but it was unclear. And, and as people, people don't remember this. Nobody at the time was talking about him as an NFL quarterback because he was small. He hadn't played yet. Right, he, he hadn't transferred. won a trophy. Yeah. yeah, like, he'd been a backup to Baker Mayfield. And, and like, the, everybody knew he loved football. Like, people could kill the A's for that pick, but they're wrong because at the time, like you guys comparing him to Andrew McCutcheon, he'd made great strides that year playing in Oklahoma. If you got him full time in baseball, like people were comparing him to Ricky Henderson, one scout I know yeah. who's really so compared. So anyway, another one pick. So anyway, I was trying everybody. I was trying everybody I knew at the Boris Corp. I was trying like six different people with the A's. I could not confirm it. I was just like, ah, I can't do it. So uh, I, I and I told Jonathan. I told Jonathan. I was like. I was like, I'm not even gonna tell you. I like, I wasn't gonna tell him what it was. I didn't. I'm not gonna give Jonathan an edge, of course. But I'm like, Jonathan, I said, I've got something that's so good, and I just can't pull the trigger, and it's just gonna kill me if it's right. And so, at about 5:30, half hour before the draft, a guy with the A's confirmed it for me, and I was like, damn it! But the only, the only good thing about it was when they came to us for our like in the draft preview show. Late breaking news, like what do you have? I had the juicy nugget that Kyler Murray was going on. So I got it on the broadcast, even though I did not have it in my final mock. But 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 that was that exact thing where like I just needed I, I just needed a, like a little confirmation I couldn't get it or or else I would have had Kyler Murray at nine. So Well, anytime because the D backs are not great, like sports talk radio here in the Valley is still all about the Cardinals and the Suns and Anytime there's discord between Kyler Murray and the Cardinals, which there has been here this offseason, I just want it to fester and grow and so he can take BP 10 minutes from my house. <laughs> I think it would be tough. I mean, like, I think he could have been something in baseball, but I, like, I think it'd be tough now with all the at-bats he lost. I mean, it would be a cool story. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It would be it would be tough. But he already lost so many and then still was playing high level, you know, Big 12 baseball pretty well. So I don't know. He's he's a special guy. All right, I'm going to give you a couple semi-open-ended questions, and then we'll both go watch hockey, and I got to go work on the Marlins list. Okay. All right, you got to pick a college bat in that 6-10 to 10 area to cut a deal with. Who's your guy? Well, 
And, and the Lightning are up one nothing. in case you're not watching. I'm not. Well, what are the parameters here? Because, like, I have a pretty good sense of who's going to cut a deal and who's not. I can't just cut a deal with Kevin Perron. I mean, Kevin Perron might get to six, but I don't think he's going to cut a deal. You're not going to cut. So, all right. So, yeah, who's in that sweet spot where you think they have incentive to cut and also are arguably part of that same tier of player? See, I don't, I don't feel like like Prada or Collier, like like my mock, which will be out when this goes up. I had Prada going, Kevin Prada, Georgia Tech going six to the Marlins, Cam Collier going seven to the Cubs, and Jacob Berry going eight to the Twins. I don't think you can really cut those guys, to be honest with you. Like maybe if you took Barry at six, because I don't think he like Barry might go seven. So I don't think you can cut those guys. Like the next tier college bats would be that Gavin Cross. Uh, Daniel Susak, Josh yeah. Young, Zach. You know what? I might go for some positional value and get cute and go Zach Neto. Can I go Zach Neto? Yeah, you can. Yes, of I, I, I think I think I'm gonna go Zach Neto. Although I, I mean, I think Zach Neto could go as high as eight. But I I think if you're looking to cut a deal, and he might go ahead of all those guys, but I, I like the fact that he's a shortstop in that group. I think he's got the most defensive value in that group. I, I think Suzak can stay catcher, but I, I I might go Zach Neto there. And then Gavin Cross is my guy. I think he can sneaky play center field. That would be the one if if the situation were right. I wouldn't go out of my way to do it, but that he's my guy. Of all the injured, or I guess you can lump Wisenhunt in with this group as well, suspended arms, guys who have had TJ or... Guys who didn't pitch a full college season there, or full yes. season is what we're getting at. Are we going college here? Or are we yes. Counting? Okay. Uh, yeah, let's stick to the college Because otherwise, guys. I think and, the answer might be pretty easy. Just say Dylan Lesko. It's just Dylan Lesko, yeah. right. But yeah, so Connor Prelip from Alabama coming off of TJ. Kamar Rocker, obviously everybody knows. Peyton Paulette at Arkansas. Landon Sims at Mississippi State. Both had TJ very early in the year. Am I missing anybody? Carson Reggie Lizzie Crawford. Hunt, Reggie Henry Crawford Williams, from UConn. Two-way guy. Tidwell had shoulder issues. It's, it's like insane how many guys. And I feel like we're still forgetting somebody. Yeah, so who who am I taking out of that group? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll ask you. I would not take Kumar Rocker right now until I saw a medical report. I, I just don't think you can. I mean, would you feel comfortable taking Kumar Rocker if you had no medical information right now? Because he failed a physical last year, and we don't know why. There probably become a point where I would view the upside as great enough to take the risk, but it probably would not be like in the first round. Right, right. Like, like I get that. Like, if I'm picking around pick fifty, I might at that point say, okay. But like, I'd have a hard time. So, so it wouldn't be him. I, I, I would take prelip. I mean, it's a small sample size. He's well. I mean, it's it was really small. So I guess time out how dominant he was before he got hurt. It's not a whole lot of innings. I, I just would take prelip. I I like his slider better than any pitch any of the other guys have. He's left-handed. He throws strikes. I think you can make a case for Wisnant. You know, Pallet intrigues me. You know, I, I you, you hear the comparisons to like a Walker Bueller. I just wish he'd been more dominant when he was healthy. Yeah. yeah, he kind of reminds me of Tidwell that way. I mean, Tidwell's got really good stuff, but Tidwell's never like Tidwell had a four ERA last year when he was healthy. He was throwing hard at the end, and it, and it was still not doing anything. He yeah, like he's he, one he of those did, guys like, where the fastball just does not play the way the radar gun reading says it should. Yeah, you know, and he he threw more than four and two thirds innings once this year. Like I'm not so on him anymore. Yeah. So any so anyway, I I would go prelip. How about you? There's part of me that wants to say Wisenhunt just because this type of guy, like the lefty with the changeup, just tends to work out to, to some extent. The floor on, on those guys is so high. But Peyton Paulette is the one where the athleticism is at a different level than 
all the other guys. Prelip scares me. The fact that the velo isn't even really close to where it was pre-surgery at this stage. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he was a 91-95 guy before he got hurt. I, there were some, when he was really peaking, like, it was 4-7. to seven. I'd rather have Mazur and some of the other, like, I think the, the, he might the have back issues are at, right now. Was risky. But yeah. <laughs> That's this draft. Like, you, got, you know, I mean, even, like, I don't know that he's hurt, but, like, even Jerpy kind of left the game early in his last start, and people were wondering what was going on. Jerpy and Hunter Barco both will be fascinating because all these teams, and Palmquist, all the teams who love the low release height data, like, how they weigh that with these guys whose stuff is otherwise, like, just kind of okay, uh, I, I think that, that that's going to be fascinating. Uh, and then last one, college outfielders with scary hit tools. A lot of them have messed up swings. Three of them were at the Pac-12 tournament. So, Brock Jones from Stanford, Dylan Beavers from Cal, Jacob Melton from Oregon State. I think you could maybe throw Chase DeLauder in there. Yeah, guys, don't love his swing. Pick one of that group who you think will actually hit. I'm going to go with Chase DeLauder. Like, there's so many guys. Like, Zach Neto doesn't have an ideal swing in, in this year's draft either. You know, he's not an outfielder. But there's, it's Brown. like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of guys. Like, the, the, like, this. I don't think there's ever been a draft when there's been more potential first-round picks with health questions and more hitters who could go in the top 50 picks who people are like, man, I don't really like that guy's swing. I'm intrigued by Chase DeLauder. Like, I feel like he's going to go in the 20s. And I feel like he should go in the teens. He belongs in the teens. I just, I know it's not the prettiest swing, but again, you could say that about a lot of dudes. And once you get past like first 10 picks or so in this draft, you look at the guy's athleticism, you look at his performance. I know he never played a full season because of COVID. James Madison played a half season last year. And he broke his foot this year, but he's a career 402 hitter. He put up numbers. He played very well in the Cape Cod League with wood bats. The guy, the guy's got really good tools. The guy's strike-at-the-walk ratio, which I think is a good indicator, is one of the best in this crop. Call me crazy. <laughs> I have Chase DeLauder right there. Like, if you made me pick, like, right, I, I would probably take Chase DeLauder ahead of Gavin Cross. I, I like Chase DeLauder that much. So you, you made the question a little easier when we included him. I would take Chase DeLauder around the 10th or 12th pick in the draft. I, I believe in that guy. How about you? I'm scared of... What has happened to DeLauder? I think that some of the model-oriented teams are going to be a little heavier on him and, like, Sterling Thompson. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if Sterling Thompson, just because of their age, it wouldn't surprise me if Sterling Thompson ends up with a four-hit tool, but it is, like, a four-hit tool that I've seen get to power before. Whereas, like, there's a chance that DeLauder, it looks so weird sometimes and so ineffectual that I'm less confident in that. But my... Of the, the group I mentioned, I came around on Beavers. I saw Beavers at opening weekend of the year. And then I don't know if Cal even came here to play ASU. I think that they played them at home. And I certainly didn't go down to Tucson. It wasn't until the Pac-12 tournament that I saw Beavers again. And he grew on me. And he's also like freaky physically in a way that the other couple of guys are not. Like he's built like Jason Wirth. Whereas like Brock Jones, not that Brock Jones is like, you know, sloppy. Brock Jones looks like he could tear me in half. But Dylan Beavers looks like he could add another 15, 20 pounds without losing any of the speed and have grown into like serious power. The amount of juice that he generates over like a short distance. It's a weird, short, abbreviated swing. His finish in, in some ways is kind of like Chase Utley's where it's just like so abbreviated. 
but there's there's so much power anyway and and you know it's just interesting to think about you have all these guys with hit tool risk judd fabian's another one you know even though they're college guys who have performed that seems to be the question about them and then what is causing the hit tool risk is variable depending on the player and some teams think they can fix this and that and others seem to not and so it'll be fascinating to see how it uh how it shakes out all right well Thanks for the time today, Jim. Is there anything that you want to uh, to plug in addition to folks, you know, just going to MLBpipeline.com, looking at all the content that you and Jonathan and Will Bohr and the whole crew churn out? Is there anything specific you want folks to be on the lookout for? Doing a lot. I mean, I, I don't know how we keep cranking it out, but we, we're doing a lot of, of draft coverage, obviously, but we're also, you know, covering the hell out of the minor leagues, too. And I, I just say, like, you, know, you did a nice plug there for us. Come to MLBpipeline.com. You know, it, it's, it's nice. I mean, it, it's... Similar to Fangraphs, like our stuff's not behind a paywall. It's all, you know, everything we do, the videos, the rankings, the, the reports, it's all there for everybody to see, which is which is nice. So just come check that out. And I try to tweet about various things we're doing at, uh, at my, my Twitter handle, Jim Callis MLB. And um, no, it's just, it's like, it's, it's weird. It's like, it, it's a good time of year, Eric. Like, I, I'm sure you're the same way because you're covering the same stuff. I feel like I'm constantly busy, and when I'm working on one thing, and there's like three other things I could be working on, but yeah. um, <laughs> but like then you look up and it's like, like it, I feel like I'll, I'll take a breath and I'll be like, hey, it's Arizona Fall League season. How's that happen? So yeah. it's uh, like I, I mean I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I think about this all the time. Even like when I'm super busy and like this time of year, I'm like, it's baseball. I, I've never had anybody tell me who finds out what I do like, man. That sounds like a rough job. Like, like, I mean, even like when I'm super busy, it's like, well, I'm trying to figure out who's going where in the draft and I'm ranking prospects. Like, so it's still fun. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a busy time of year, but it's still fun. Yes. It has been, I've been going, going, going basically since, since KG and, and Brandon and now like Tess have all kind of left and like, I am exhausted. And some of the stuff you warned me about years ago is only now, like really finally starting to catch up to me in a way that like I can feel manifesting in my physical body and like my well-being <laughs> but yeah like I don't hate it I don't dislike it at all like going to the field for the combine some of it was just because when I'm at like an AZL game here and it's 108 <laughs> I have to tell myself many times throughout the night like to refocus to not think about how like I can feel the sweat running down my lower back and like into my butt crack but like how this 19 year old is only sitting 92 93 but like look how athletic and balanced and project like to try to focus through the temps here and then like to go to san diego and for it to be 72 every day and just not have to worry about anything except what was going on on the field in front of me for those six hours was was really nice um and, and like i said i mean also like it's like a winter meetings like for the draft like just walking back to the hotel, I would run into players or GMs. Like you could not turn around and not see somebody you knew. Yeah, there's Mike Elias on his phone. There's yeah. Tuffy Gosowitz. I'm waiting for the elevator after the Thursday game, and I'm on the elevator with Mike Rizzo. Like you know, I mean, it's just like like I ran into like I don't know how many scout directors I ran into, and I was kind of tethered to the concourse a lot too, or I would run into a bunch more. It's just it's crazy. It was a really good time, and uh, you know, it's interesting. They they made it. It was well, I guess it was more. It was open to fans last year because it was at the USA Training Complex. This year they had the Friday workout open to fans. I wasn't there for Saturday. Was the Saturday workout open to fans? 
Yes, as far as I know, there were definitely like parents and and stuff were all in there. Well, yeah, but I know Friday you could actually like like actual fans like could come in. I, I assume sorry for the workout too. I don't. You maybe they'll make the games available that way. I know they've talked about possibly streaming the games next year. I I, I do think it will keep getting better, and there'll be more stuff on MLB Network and more stuff online as they get a handle. I mean, this year, I mean, first year they were trying to get the thing going, which was a huge undertaking. This year we did a three-hour show on Thursday that we didn't do last year, and they were trying to figure out how to make that work. And then logistically, I, I don't remember the count last year, but I don't think we had 250 players in carry, and, and there were 250 or so in, in San Diego. So I think it'll just keep getting better, and they're they're trying to get feedback from teams about ways to improve it. And like I said, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to oversell like, oh, hey, Termar Johnson took a good BP, and now he's going number one in my mock draft because of that BP. That, that's not why he's number one. But I just think it's a really good way to promote the game too. It really, you know, they get a, they had a bunch of big leaguers interacting with, with, the, with the draft prospects, and I thought it was a pretty cool deal. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a great time and, and thought it was a hell of an event. I can't wait to, to go again next year. So thanks to Jim Callis for joining us today. We're going to go watch hockey. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. I've been Eric Long and Higgin. See you guys again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Heim Bloom and to Jim Callis for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs.com shop, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. We hope you have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.